0: This episode of the Brewery Pro Podcast is presented by HPA. HPA's team of experts in breeding, growing, harvesting and processing hops is dedicated to delivering impact in your beer year after year. This episode of Brewer's Perspective looks at how packaging programs in the brew house can impact the quality of your beer. If you would like to learn how HPA is contributing to a sustainable future of quality beer, You can listen to Owen Johnson chat with HPA's agronomic services team on the topic of quality assurance in hop production. This conversation was part of HPA's 2021 virtual harvest and is a valuable insight into how HPA ensures that only the highest quality hops reach the hands of brewers. There's a link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and this week on Brewers Perspective, Marcus and Anthony discuss how to ensure that good beer from the brewery gets into packaging in the same quality and stays that way right through to the marketplace. Our guest is Simon Liu, Packaging and Production Manager at Four Pines Brewing Company. Prior to joining Four Pines, Simon worked for Three Ravens, Two Brack Hotel and Brewery and Thunder Road Brewing. At Four Pines, Simon has worked through various supply roles, from brewing to logistics to running the packaging line for three years, and Simon now looks after all new products and technologies for the company. In this discussion, Simon explains the best practices breweries need for their packaging lines to ensure beer is in the best possible condition from production through to consumption. We also delve into the topic of pasteurisation and whether it's necessary for breweries seeking broader distribution.
1: Day, Simon. Would you mind kicking off just with uh, what you do at Four Pines, please, some background?
2: Yeah, no worries. I, uh, I work for Four Pines in Brookvale. Uh, I'm looking after all the new product development at the moment, uh, but previously I had been in charge of the packaging section for three, three and a half years.
1: Just to kind of give you some more credentials, uh, Simon, can you give us a quick rundown on your uh, educational background?
2: Yeah, sure. I, um, I studied chemical engineering and biology and biotechnology at university with the full intent that I wanted to go into brewing afterwards. Uh, and I've recently completed my IBD uh, diploma in brewing as well.
0: How did you come to, uh, to be at Four Pines?
2: Uh, so I was moving up to Sydney uh, and I met uh, Chris Wilcox, the head brewer there, or chief brewer there, when Marcus and I, funnily enough, were working together at Thunder Oak. Uh, for a collaboration on uh, the AIBA beer when Four Pines won Champion Large and Thunder Road had won Champion Medium. And so I gave him a call and asked him if I could get a job because I was moving up to Sydney. And so he gave me a job on the brewery floor and bit by bit I've worked my way through different parts of the business.
3: You're very humble, Simon, because I've heard uh, that you've – pretty much designed and uh, put the packaging line together there at Four Pines. So um, it sounds like you've been involved in a lot of different things. Uh, I guess, yeah. You know, did you Do you have a philosophy when you were putting the packaging line together?
2: Look, it wasn't just me. Well, uh, there was definitely a full team at Four Pines that, yep. that helped. Uh, and we, we did have the, the team at Foodback uh, designing the, the line and, and things like that. I think for us at Four Pines, it's mainly the philosophy is quality over anything else. So things like dissolved oxygen, things like uh, you know, good micro were, were top of the list. So we, we went a little bit out there and, and got a full clean room. So it is a sterile filler. And yeah, you know, we went a little bit bigger with a 10,000 can per hour unit so that we had room for growth as well.
3: So is the the full clean room was it a, was it a significant cost Simon or was it was it reasonable
2: It's it's a significant cost uh, and not only that it's it's about upkeep and then all of there's not much point in getting a clean room if you can't have the internal cleaning structure with it so you know there's some subsequent costs that come along with that as well
0: If if, if you're a smaller brewery that doesn't have the resources to get the full clean room are you still able to you know focus on quality without some of those flash bells and whistles?
2: Absolutely, yeah. And look, then it, then it comes down to, to a lot of process. So good standard operating procedures, I think, are a must in any packaging line. You know, bringing beer on uh, and then your quality checks before you actually have releasable product, I think are sort of the top, top things if you don't have you know all the bells and whistles you, you need to have pretty stringent process in place on a packaging line
1: so speaking to a, a broader audience with maybe smaller capacity included what's what's the expectation from the liquid that you receive in from the seller how how do you what's your best case worst case kind of pathway for that liquid how, how what's your tolerance for things degrading things changing on the packaging line
2: the main thing that packaging lines have control over is probably dissolved oxygen um, and CO2. So the the beer has to be almost pristine before it gets to the pack line. I mean, we used to joke on the pack line that the only thing we can do is make the beer worse. (laughs) We we can't make it any better uh, because it's in that form, right? Um, So we're pretty strict with dissolved oxygen and co2 because one can inform the other um if you're too high in co2 when it's coming off the line you're getting a lot of losses so your headspace increases in your bottles and cans which then can increase your total product oxygen um and if there's not enough co2 in the product uh, the fobbing may not be as effective towards the end of the uh the pack and again that'll increase your dissolved oxygen and your
0: up We might get into some of those uh, detailed technical uh, specs and how you run those, but just stepping back, I, I love that idea that you can't make the beer better. How do you structure the organisational responsibility at uh, Four Pines you know, for the packaging line with the production uh, team to, to work out whose responsibility is, is what and, and how you work effectively together to make sure that there is a seamless approach to packaging.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, we, we brew, you know, and I assume even the smaller breweries would have specification at different points in, in their process, uh, you know, for the brewery, things like AE, OE, all that sort of sort of jazz all the way through. Then we have the sort of upper and lower limits of those specifications. So the plus or minus that you can fall into. Anything outside of that needs to be brought up with the quality team or a manager that will then uh, either put in place something to fix it or uh, allow it to go through depending on on what process spec it is. Um, And then there's a pretty hard handover. Um, So we've got our BBTs in, in a separate warehouse to where we actually package. Uh, and that's our sort of hard handover between the brewery and the pack line where the brewery have to sign off uh, that the BBT is in spec and then the packaging line will retest it to make sure that it is in spec and then that's sort of that hard handover point where each BBT has both brewery and packaging uh, sign off. Uh, Anything outside of spec, the quality team have to be brought in to, uh, to sign that off.
3: So what uh, what does the quality team look at? I suppose to to make that decision, Simon. So what what kind of things are they are they looking at?
2: They're they mainly looking at CO two dissolved oxygen, uh, pH, haze, color, and uh, Plato.
3: Okay. So are they looking at the the balance of the beer or the style of the beer as well, or Absolutely. You... So
2: there is a there's a true to taste sign off. Okay. Uh, and, yeah. Is is this beer true to type? If if it is, know, uh, yeah, we can be outside certain specs, but if it's not, then then it won't it won't get released.
3: So Simon, it's that's a that's probably a fair luxury to have a quality team to to come in and um, it, you know oversee the the process. Um, someone who's probably a little bit more uh, agnostic to the to what's going on, I suppose. You know, for the smaller guys, like how do they? Um, how do you suggest that they make some decisions? Are there? Are there? You know, is there a, like a little bit of a decision tree or something that you go through to to go? All right, how do we? You know, do we maybe put this one in keg only, or do we do we proceed through to packaging? You know, is there a
2: process that you use? There, there is in, in different settings. Um, you know, we've we've also got three smaller uh, sort of. Micro sites now at, at Four Pines. We've got a, a five hectolitre system in Manly and a 10 hectolitre in Melbourne and another 10 hectolitre at Sporting Globe in King Street Wharf. Um, and a, again, it's that balance of uh, specification versus is the beer good enough to sell, right? Um, and I think those sites don't have the quality team. And so what happens there is uh, generally speaking, it's a tasting that will occur and there'll be sort of an upper or lower limit, you know, we mark it out of of 10 and if it's fresh at, you know, greater than 7, we'd deem it releasable to sell. Less than 7, we'd look at reworking it, whether that be, you know, adding dry hop, extra dry hop to it or putting it and, and blending it with something else to see if we can sort of make something spectacular. But the idea is that we don't want average quality beer out there because that can do just as much harm as sort of not selling beer, I guess.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about that reworking? It's certainly something that, at least with my experience with smaller producers, they don't really get their head around that it's stop, start, it's good beer, it's not good beer. And there's there's a bit of a panic. Um, even on the smaller scale is, yeah, potential to rework.
2: Absolutely. Look, again, going back to something like DO, um, where if you've got high dissolved oxygen in bright tank, it's not the end of the world. You can bubble it, but, you know, as part of that rework, you've got pluses and minuses. So the more you bubble that dissolved oxygen out of your bright tanks, the uh, less head retention you'll more than likely have, because as you're blowing that DO out, you're creating your foam there, so it may be that there's a happy medium, where you know, say you've got a DO of two hundred in your bright tank, and you want to bring it down, you only go to hundred rather than your normal release spec of less than fifty, so that you've still got some head retention left in your beer. Um, but that's a, you know, a relatively simple rework. Other things can be brewing another beer or blending with uh, a fresher beer in order to get uh, a saleable product. Uh, so the same beer, you're not creating something new, but in essence, you've, you've brewed a backup batch to then re-blend with, but that also requires having enough tanks to be able to do that.
1: So not to go too deep into the internal practices of four pines, but um, how, how frequently would you have to rework something,
2: just, just course numbers? I've been there five years, and I think we've only had to rework maybe two or three
3: beers. You've got some very strict parameters around uh, beers, and you're 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 hitting those parameters quite regularly. So you must have good brewing quality and good packaging quality to be able to be able to manage that. Uh, you know, from a commercial perspective, you know, is there is there a point where you say, well, we're not reworking where, um, you know, we're going to either we're gonna put this down the drain or um, or make it a different completely different product altogether.
2: Yeah, look, I think there's definitely that option as well. Is you know, if something's not quite right, you can you know, and again, we taste beers in FB as well to make sure that they're they're tracking along okay. Um and I think the earlier you catch issues in the process, the more options you have later down the track. Um, so I, I'd highly recommend, you know, doing cellar tastings, walking around and, and having a taste of fermenting beer, you know, beer that's on de-rest, all of, all of the above, just to make sure that if there are any issues to catch them early. The other thing, I don't think there's a brewery that's too small to have good operating procedures. So I would recommend having a good set of standard operating procedures from brewing all the way through to packaging and it just takes out a little bit of that human element um, in terms of making mistakes or or different processes that that can affect the beer adversely.
0: Again, picking up that point you said about good operating practices, what are the, the bare bones that every brewery should be doing to making sure that the beer that's coming out of tank is going into package in the best possible condition you know you they may not have laboratories they may not have you know some of the bells and whistles but what are the bare bones that they should be looking at um in addition to standard operating practices
2: i'd say good pipework design uh having uh you know minimal bends uh minimal dead legs so areas where the the flow of liquid isn't quite turbulent enough i'd say flushing uh If you've got access to deaerated water, to utilise that. If you don't have access to deaerated water, uh, CO2 purging, uh, especially through things like filters. So making sure that you're actually giving filters a really good purge because you'll find that that's where most of of your dissolved oxygen will be picked up is through filters. If you're filtering on the way to your uh, bright tanks or, or on the way to your fillers. Yeah, I think pipe works probably a big one. So minimizing the amount of triclover fittings or, or screw fittings, fittings of any kind really. and connection points anywhere that has the opportunity to sort of pick up dissolved oxygen.
3: You mentioned, Simon, that and I and I thought it was a great as a great idea is just to pick up on problems as early as possible. Uh, so you're tasting throughout the entire process. Is it? Do you have a formal approach uh, at at Four Pines or wherever else you've worked at to, to do tastings of this nature?
2: We are starting to build a formal approach in now. But previously, it was sort of three or four of us just sort of walking around having a taste of beer. Um, but we're bringing that into a more formal uh, methodology um, and like small scale. I don't think a formal approach is, is super necessary, especially if you've only got a team of, of two or three. But we've got a team of, I think, mean, 24 or 25 across brewing packaging and quality now. So it, it, to formalise the process just means everybody's running in the same direction, which makes it a lot easier to make uh, decisions and, and keep your decision trees relatively simple.
3: So do you record it? Do you write it down? Yeah.
2: Yep. Yep. So we, we do a full sit-down with beer all the way through and give it a mark and look at sort of all, all different aspects. But again, it, it, it's very important to, I think, define, especially for core products, it's a little bit harder for specialty products, but for core products to define what the beer is, uh, you know, sort of when you're judging and when you're looking at it, you're consistently bringing it back to is it true to type?
3: Yeah, because I guess that's what the customer's looking for. So that's the most important thing for you, is it true to type? Yeah, yeah.
2: So
1: the most important spec out of all of the specs is finished product.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, as it should be, right? Like you can brew a spec all you want, that may taste different. So it, it needs to be the product that you you want on the shelf.
1: So that that's a good lead into touching on um, expiry dates, expiry dates. Are your expiry dates on your products realistic? Um, what's your degradation cycle look like out on the shelf?
2: We've we've got a, a flash pasteurizer on site, so our our products relatively stable on the shelf, um, and you know, the the benefit of having a flash pasteurizer is the, the thermal degradation across the beer isn't isn't great, uh, or too big. I suppose probably the wrong word saying great. So, our our shelf life is relatively stable in comparison to a lot of products out there. I think if you're not stabilizing the product in any way, a six to nine month shelf life would probably be be more appropriate than a nine to 12. Um, And again, we do sort of fresh tasting, three month tasting, six month tasting. and have a look at the scores. And there's there's a, I believe if it falls below seven, it means that we need to do some work on shelf life stability. And part of that is really when we do the in-trade tasting. So we, we get data from in-trade, uh, and being a bigger brewery and, and owned by a bigger company allows us a little bit more to, to look at that where that three-month point is generally when people are, are getting it off the shelf. And so that's sort of our gold standard of, of where we sit and where we're tasting all of our beers. So we every batch that we produce, we're tasting at fresh and 3 months.
0: Simon, on pasteurising, it, it, it's one of the final frontiers for this idea of craft brewing, that there's a, still a lot of resistance to brewers' pasteurising beer. Have, do, you, do you notice that there's much difference um in the pre and post pasteurized versions of the, the Four Pines beers? Look, there's
2: definitely a difference. Is it massive? No. And I think what you can do is just alter the the recipes in order to to boost that hop character. It's mainly where you see the difference is is the hop aroma. Um but the other thing I would say is if, if you can't get your dissolved oxygen under control, I wouldn't put a flash pasteurizer in, uh, simply because the the thermal degradation with higher levels of oxygen, it's not great for the beer. You're better off not doing it. Is,
0: is the pasteuriser you – know, necessary evil isn't the right way because it makes it sound evil – but is, is a, is, is a pasteuriser – just something that brewers that are looking for broader um, distribution really going to have to start considering um, moving
2: forward? I think of a certain scale, yes. Uh, Small scale, probably not because the turnover on the shelf um, is relatively quick and you've got far more control over things like stock management. Um, I think the pasteuriser gives you a little bit more leeway in terms of having to manage stock across a nation, whereas if you're selling locally, yeah, you know, I don't think it's necessary. If you're only in a few different places across Australia, then again, I think your control over stock is probably a far more effective way to to go forward with your brewery rather than. Installing
0: flash pasteuriser. So a flash pasteuriser is an addition to good pra- practice. It's not a safety net for bad practice, or it's not it can't save bad practice. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, oh, I would totally agree with that, Matt. I think it exacerbates bad practice, doesn't it, Simon? I mean, and that leads yeah. into my question in regards to, you know, what are the kinds of things that you'd look at? Um, you know, what are the key parameters that you focus on on the pack line to ensure that you know you aren't exacerbating any any issues within the beer when you're putting it through the pasteurizer? So, um, you know, do you have a bit of a key list of parameters that you focus on?
2: Yeah, so I think the main thing that the pasteurizer is going to exacerbate is oxygen and oxygen degradation. And it's simply because of how hot it gets, that the oxygen pretty much reacts very, very quickly. Yep. And so by the time it comes out of the pasteurizer, you don't know whether or not you've had any oxidative reactions unless you're tasting it. So keeping a really good control on DO you know, pre-pasteurizer and have it and making sure that you're controlling the actual number of PUs, so pasteurization units uh, that you're know, putting the beer through, I think are the two key parameters on that. and that's you know a function of heat and time and speed I guess. Outside of that, I we, we've set up our pasteurizer so that you uh, carbonate post uh, pasteurization so we've got sterile co2 going in once it's cold again and that's just because the process is a lot easier to control when there's no carbonation in the beer uh, and the carbonate uh, post pasteurizer the beer comes out at negative two degrees so it's relatively easy to carbonate up
3: yeah good cool i guess is there you know for guys that are not pasteurizing are there parameters that you would you would look at like um you know what do you do around fill heights and seam integrity and and that type of thing line efficiency you know stop starting of lines uh, oh, yeah. how do you Absolutely. how do you manage how do you, you know, even guys that because a lot of i guess small brewers are not got the capacity uh, to put flash pasteurizers in but what are the kinds of things i guess they can do to to make sure that the the quality of the beer coming off the other end of that line is is just spot on and and uh, where they want to be to to get it into retail?
2: Yeah, look, I I would say definitely try to avoid stop-start. So continuous operation is always uh, better. So you're better off running your machine a little bit slower so that you can keep up. So all of your sort of process can keep up, whether that be cluster packing, uh, crowning, uh, packaging, what have you, that you want that filler to be running consistently. So you design your packaging line um, with a, with what they call a V curve. So the filler is at the bottom of the V and that's in operation 100% of the time. And then as you work your way back up to the tops of the, the two points, so that's the inputs and the outputs at the other two points of the V, you want them stop starting versus your filler. And that just means that the quality of beer coming out should be a lot better because the D.O. should be much more stable, your CO2 should be much more stable and all of the operation should uh, help that process. The other thing is good maintenance. So, you know, a lot of people look at packaging lines, you know, turn it on, let it go. But I think good preventative maintenance, so seal replacement, uh, lubrication, all that sort of stuff definitely helps, again, bring it back to that stop-start operation and, and make sure that it's continuous. Um, and just good quality, ongoing quality checks. So testing your, your crown seals or your, your can seams on a consistent basis to make sure that all the product coming off is you know conformance, uh, true conformance, I guess.
3: I guess uh, one of one of the things that we've we've talked about a little bit is just the kinds of issues we see in in the in the trade. Uh, are there any things that you, you know, that stand out for you? Because I mean, I guess for me, it's oxidation. I see, you know, it's one of the, the key things that we see in trade quite often with with uh, craft beer. And you know, when you're paying quite a high price for, for beer. Um, to get beer that's not in the best shape is, is disappointing. Uh, what are the key things that, that you see out in the trade that really that really bug you? And, and what are the things that I guess the smaller guys or any craft brewer can do to to reduce those?
2: Yeah, I think, look, I agree. Oxidation is definitely one for me that, that sort of kills me when I see it. Um, the other probably two that I, I would say sort of get me a little bit is diacetyl and um, acid aldehyde. They're they're two pretty common across uh, different breweries. Diacetyl, you know, it's it's a relatively easy one and and everybody should be doing their forced diacetyl checks. So heating the beer up before you chill it uh, to make sure that you're reacting out any of the precursor so that you know that it's, it's clear of precursor as well as diacetyl. Uh, and that's a pretty standard test. And then acid aldehyde, I guess, you know, good fermentation, and good yeast health and management is always an important one.
1: Do you think the diacetyl is kind of the corollary of uh, re-fermentation in the finished package?
2: I think it's a, co- a combination of uh, either that or they haven't done the force check. So while it's... You know that they smell the beer at the end of ferment and go, yeah, there's no diacetyl there. They haven't forced all of that precursor out, and so they haven't left it long enough in, at the higher temperature after the primary ferment's completed. I guess
3: because we've got a um a fantastic coal supply chain, don't we? I mean, we can all <laughs> we can all guarantee that the the beer is going to be cold from the moment you'd left the brewery to <laughs> to when uh, the consumers uh, drinking it. So that's a really good point. Is yeah, you know, when beer warms up and you've got uh, precursors still,
1: it gets activated. Yeah, yep. so yeah,
2: and yeah, the diacetyl comes back in force. Um, and look, that that is definitely the ideal of, and it's something that I think I've, I've played with, with, I've had experience with in the past, is that cold chain delivery, which is fantastic, and it really helps the quality of beer. It's just the logistics of cold chain. Is, is quite hard to manage. And so especially when you get into anything of any scale, it becomes a lot more difficult to, to handle.
0: Simon, so, mean, do you think brewers need to be a little bit more realistic about the full logistics chain of that their beers are going to go in when they look at the in-brewery practices? You know, that, that if, they, if they know that their beer is going to be going through a warm chain, that there are some things that they need to focus on much more than if they did have end-to-end cold chain for example, and that they need to engineer that awareness in, in, into their practices?
2: Absolutely. I think that's sort of – I think any brewery needs to look at their, their whole process holistically. You you can't look at any part of a brewery in, in isolation um, because I think you, you're just going to get into trouble. The beer may taste absolutely phenomenal the day after you've packed it. Up, but if the punter isn't getting it for another three months and – the flavour's just all gone, then you need to take that into consideration. You know, it's no good patting yourself on the back saying, this fucking is amazing, Apologies. Um When the punter's not getting at the same freshness level, I guess. In,
0: in terms of your reference stock, so you, you keep a portion of every batch aside to be able to do your three and six month checks on. Do you also go into trade and buy it back, you know, when it's been out in the wild and it's a little bit less controlled?
2: We have uh, when we do battlefield testings and things like that. So we buy three or four different products that are sort of reminiscent of one of our core beers. And at the same time, we'll buy our beer off the shelf as well to see how we're doing uh, in trade. Okay, so, so just
0: talk us through the idea of battlefield testing.
2: It's just a good thing to sort of look at you know, how your process and how your beer holds up against, you know, your main competitors, I guess. So you go out and pick three or four different beers that, you know, have a semblance of what your beer is and then you try and get them all around the same age so you make sure that you're looking at the, the best us because, you know, if you're tasting a year-old beer versus a six-month-old beer, it's not really a fair assessment. Uh, and then you sit down in a... Um, in a controlled environment, and, and do a full tasting, so blind tasting as well. I should add.
3: Well, that, that's a that's a fairly cheap and uh, easy way to to understand what's going on. Uh, what What are the What are the things you see when you when you battlefield testing?
2: I think it's, a, it's it's amazing when you go uh, blind tasting the difference of opinion when people know what product it is. Uh, the opinion can, can often change when you're fully aware of what it is and when you do it blind, and I think that's the most amazing thing to me with blind tasting. It's, beer is such an emotional and uh, dependent flavour. It depends on who you're with and who you're around, and it's, it's not, I guess, sterile in that, in that sense.
0: Just on that, Simon, I mean, our next session is actually a, set, a sensory session with uh, Tina Panutis. And what sort of sensory uh, program have you got to train your staff, you know, in, in sensory evaluation, so that you bring to that blind tasting?
2: Uh, so we do an internal training on off flavors, and then we have begun to to do the uh, what's it called the beer. Sommelier. I can't remember Cicero. Cicero, <laughs> yep. Um, so the guys have started to all of the brew team have started to do the Cicero course as well.
1: Can you give us a little bit of um, more information on the true to type definitions and how you come up with those and what that what that format looks like?
2: Yeah, so it's it's fairly similar to you know the stock standard um, flavor spiders, I guess, that you can find online. Uh, you pick five or six different attributes that you want your beer to to sort of hold, and then you you give it a rating between one and five. Um, And that's not sort of, that's an intensity scale, not how good it is, if that makes any sense. So one being very low, five being super intense. And then as as you go across it, it it gives you a a flavor profile across five or six different attributes.
1: Do you have any magical way where you link product variations through process with slight deviations in that true-to-type analysis at the end?
2: Uh, no, not as yet. Sure. But it's something to look at.
0: <laughs> just, just for brewers that are, you know, the complete range of sales, uh, you know, sizes and scales and, you know, com- capabilities, when it comes to thinking of the end quality um, of your beer through the packaging line, Are there any just absolute non-negotiable things that no matter the size of the brewery, you you know, corners you wouldn't cut? Um, And are there any that, you know, you think, well, that's a nice luxury to have, but we we can do without it?
2: I think safety is one that you wouldn't cut. Um, Making sure that the, the machine stops when you open a door, in my mind, is one of the most important things because the machines are pretty pretty robust and they will take a finger if it can. Yeah, that that's a definite non-negotiable. Uh, I would say automation is, is something that's nice to have but not necessary. Uh, there's good manual fillers that you can get. Um, again, that, that becomes about good operating procedures and good process. Uh, I would say my first purchase if I was ever going to run my own brewery would be, a DO meter, because I think that's it's just in my mind non-negotiable. The beer may taste perfect the day after we pack it, but if it's got too much oxygen in it, a week later it's going to taste terrific.
3: Is that your minimum equipment list? Uh,
2: so <laughs> I mean, a, D- a DO meter, <laughs> or yeah, um, meter, and that's
3: it. Do Do you do anything uh, on the micro side? You know, microscopes, etc. Yeah, look,
2: yeah, we we have. Um, a full quality team, which we're lucky enough to have. So we, we do in-house micro uh, on every batch. Uh, and we, we only release batches into the market once they're micro and clear. Um, and, you know, ATP testing for, for cleanliness in the brew house and for the packaging uh, or pack line equipment. And then... We also have uh, rapid testing if we need to uh, release something very quickly. If
0: you were your own quality team and you, you didn't have that uh, luxury, what would be the you know again looking at the minimums that you would have? You know, it is can you rely on your sensory training or your palate to pick up some of these problems, or are there things that you would look at doing you know, as a bare minimum?
2: I think as a bare minimum, I, I would at least verify process. Uh, with an external lab, so you'd have pretty stringent cleaning processes in place, and then send samples off to the lab to be tested. And then, as long as you've got checks and balances in that process, so tick boxes that say "yes, I've done this," then you've had you've got a verified process that I, I would feel fairly confident your sensory would be able to pick up anything outside of the norm.
0: Are you a member of Bira? The uh Beer Industry Analyte's training? Yes, oh, we are. You are? S-
1: Slabin's Brewery presented the current round for analysis.
0: There you go. Okay. And, and w- w- would you recommend, because it, it sounds like it's an incredibly cost-effective way of breweries being able to index their own testing capacity or their in-house, whatever that capacity is. Yeah, I think it's
2: a, it's a good way to check that anything, any lab testing that you're doing um, is valid. Because that's, that's the other thing, right? You can test all you want, but if you don't know it's valid, it, it may mean very little.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's one of the cheapest things you can do, isn't it? So, Yeah.
1: And def- definitely third-party um, analysis is critical to, to benchmark yourself ongoingly. Mm-hmm. Um, that frequency of every time you make a 1% change to process, you probably don't need to send off to re-verify, validate. But something like a 5% change, you're definitely committing to... significant overhaul of process and that's when you have to hit the triggers to reassess.
0: Now this is a question and this will probably be the last question unless you guys have got any more to to throw in and and I'd be interested in hearing from each of the three of you. We we are seeing a whole range of small canning lines uh, uh, popping up in breweries. Are there any just must-haves that anyone that's looking at investing in a small canning line they just need to have and are there some just not you know, I'm not necessarily naming any particular brands but are there just not some not fit for purpose machines out there
1: so I mean very much I've, I've lived in the States for a couple of years and people were using crowler filling machines to send stuff to market <laughs> so they were date stamping for small supermarket groups or bottle shop groups and there was one guy with a rag and it okay, so that's
0: not fit for purpose. Not fit for purpose. How about once you get into the things that aren't just, uh, you know, uh, crowler fillers, are, are there machines that, or are there things that you just need to have in any um, packaging line that you get these days?
3: I think a really nice nice one to have would be just, you know, some scales like a load cell on your, on your filling line that's just going to give you an idea of your fill heights. So if you've got gross underfills, you know we know that you know the oxygen's going to be higher in those beers. So you'll get more of a random, you'll get more of a random scattering of, of sensory results from them. So yep. one will be oxidized, and the rest of the six pack might be completely fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can remove those outliers and have a more consistent um, group, then on that, I think that's a you know, very nice to have.
1: For a lesser investment, just to kind of tune up the equipment, that standalone scale set for exactly the same function is Mm -hmm. is highly valuable. Just getting those weights to make sure you've got the fill levels and you actually do have beer up to the top of the can or to the appropriate fill level.
0: Simon, anything from you on that one?
2: No, I 100% agree with the the scales. it's A, number one, important to, to verify that what you're doing is correct.
0: Excellent. Well, But any last tips, tricks, advice that you can offer to make sure that when your brew team are handing you uh, high-quality beer that you're not stepping all over it?
2: If you can get, you know, especially if you've got larger teams, if you can get everybody doing the same process, it makes it a lot easier to figure out when something goes wrong, why it went wrong. And I think problem-solving process can be very difficult if if you don't have
3: good procedures in place. I agree with you as well. One thing we haven't talked about, we've talked a lot about the beer and the specifications around the beer itself, but we haven't spoken a lot about the packaging material. Is there is there anything that you you know would say is a must have on your pack line or you or you must be checking when you're when you're doing packaging to to ensure you've got you know the best looking product sitting in the shelves as well.
2: Yeah, look, we, we check all of our labels on bottles. So we've got a little, it's you know, a see-through sheath that you put over the top of the bottle that makes sure that your body label and your neck label are aligned. Uh, I think that's the simple things like that uh, make all the difference, uh, especially when they're sitting on shelf and there's a skewed label. It's not a great look.
0: As you said, we bring a lot of passion to, you know, blind tastings work for that reason. We do drink with our eyes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's everything from the surroundings to what you're looking at to the mood you're in will change the flavour of that beer that you're tasting. So, I think it's important to get everything right. Wonderful. Well,
0: Simon, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of uh, Brewer's Perspective and uh, giving us uh, the insights into how to get good beer in and keep it good in packaging. My pleasure. Thanks
2: very much for having me.
3: Thanks for the chat. It was great. Thank you, Simon. So
0: and that was Simon Lou. We hope you learned a lot. Don't forget you can join our Brewery Pro Facebook group to discuss this episode and connect with others within the industry. To join the group, just search for RBN Brewery Pro in Facebook. Once again, we thank HPA for their support in making this episode and a lot of great beer possible. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show. If you have a brewery, you can take a subscription or if you're an individual, you can sponsor the show. There's a link in the show notes. You can review us on the Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast service and you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts. We're also very keen to hear what topics you would like to see covered by our panel of expert brewers. You can contact us at the producer email address, which once again is producer at brewsnews.com.au.